0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so let me, let me ask you to picture a moment and a scene. And the scene is you being, I mean, I'm talking deeply, deeply, deeply wounded by another person. You, you being severely sinned against by another human being. Now, the truth is, for most of us in the room, we don't have to imagine a scene like that. It's what you call life in a fallen world, living with other sinful people. And so, um, I I don't think we have to, like, have a a, a huge stretch here in saying that for most of us in the room, we've tasted that. I mean, someone that has severely sinned against us, wounded us in unbelievably terrible ways. Okay, now let me press this one step further now, and I want you to imagine— You having the one that harmed you in your hands. You can do whatever you want to them. You have the power to get any sort of revenge and retaliation. You you can make them pay for the pain that they've caused you. They are in your hands, the the one that's harmed you. And, And here's my question to you. What happens in that moment for you? And the truth is, what happens in that moment is is one of the telltale signs of what you really believe about God and how much of the gospel you've actually experienced. And that is exactly where our man Joseph finds himself in this story, isn't it? So just to kind of jog your memory on on where we've been, in Genesis 37 we're introduced to a 17-year-old probably arrogant and a little bit prideful Joseph. He's favored by his father and he is hated by his brothers. They they have an incredible amount of envy um, toward him because he's favored. His father's given him a coat and they don't have a coat. And on top of that he starts dreaming these these dreams where his brothers are bowing down to him. Now you can just imagine how that's going to go over. That, that dream literally pushed the envy of his brothers over the edge. So they come up with this plot to murder Joseph. It ends up and then selling Joseph into slavery. Now that's at 17 years old and just track the progression here for the next roughly 13 years. He lands in Egypt. He's bought, is sold and bought by, by Potiphar. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and ends up in prison. Years of his life, waste away, falsely accused because he's sitting in prison. And if you're Joseph, you could trace all of that back to this moment where your brothers sold you up the river. Where your brothers it, sinned against you in an incredibly terrible way. You can trace it all back to that. And then ironically, in the providence of God, Joseph has is, is risen to the second command in all of Egypt— and his brothers have now reappeared on the scene second committed all of Egypt they are in his hands right now to do whatever he wants to do with them he if he wants to make them pay for the pain he can do that and no one's going to know about it no one's going to bat an eye at it no one's going to ask a question about it he, he has got them in his hands And this is where we get to Genesis chapter 50, and I think the most remarkable part of the story is watching how Joseph responds to these men who have been brutal to him, who have wounded him in inexpressible ways. And and so pick it up with me here in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. It says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back. In other words, he may now get the revenge that surely has been brewing up in him. For, for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave the command before he died. And almost all scholars agree that they're totally making that up. Joseph was at uh, the side of Jacob, you know, as he's dying. If he wanted to say something to him, he could have said it then, right? And so, uh, so generally speaking, it's, agreed upon that they are totally stretching the truth here to try to get to try to just secure the forgiveness of joseph so they they sent a message to joseph saying your father gave this command before he died say to joseph please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you and now please and you've got it twice in verse 17 the same word and now please forgive this is the big idea of the text in the morning Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So here's the scene. Jacob has died. Jacob is the patriarch. He's he's the, the you know basically he's the dad that kind of is holding the family together. And if you've ever seen kind of the dysfunctional family thing, when all the brothers and all the sisters have these squabbles going on, that there are some seasons where where the patriarch can kind of be the glue to keep it together. But when the patriarch dies, everything, I mean, the fabric just comes apart. And that's what they're feeling here. The the patriarch has died and they're asking the question, starting to wonder, is Joseph now going to bear his teeth? What was the forgiveness that he expressed in Genesis 45 years ago now, was that authentic and real or was that for the sake of his father? What was it? They're starting to wonder that. And that leads us to some of the most grace-filled words in all of the Bible. I think probably the most remarkable three verses in the entire story of Joseph, starting at the end of verse 17. When Joseph heard this, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept. He wept. You know, when you are sinned against, I think there's two general responses that people have when they're sinned against. And one, we could just call fight. Uh, you know, for me personally, it is like the, the reflexive kind of reaction I have when I'm punched. When I'm punched, I'm ready to punch back. That, that, I mean, everything in me brews up to that. It's just this reflexive thing to say, when, when you've hurt me, well, here's what's about to happen now. You're about to pay for that. So so you've hurt me, now, now you're going to pay for hurting me. So it's punch, I punch back mentality. I was laughing the other day listening to one pastor talk about this. He said, you know, I really don't understand or get the idea of passivism, but what I do clearly get and understand is the idea of pass the fistism. I get that. If you want to talk about past the on <laughs> I am all about it. So this is that, just that reflexive thing in us when we get punched to punch back. It's, it's fight. But for some in the room, that's not quite as reflexive. For some in the room, when we're sinned against, it's not fight, it's flight. It's, it's not you've sinned against me, so I'm looking at you and you're going to pay for it. It's you've sinned against me. And now I'm going to retreat into kind of this self-pity. It's you've sinned against me. And it's not poor you because you're about to pay for it. It's poor me. So so we we retreat kind of into this self-pity. And and essentially what we start to do is we just take the punches. And we all do that in our heart as we club them internally. But we just kind of retreat into this self-pity. The the two primary responses, fight and flight. And here's what the Bible is going to welcome you and I into today is a third road and a third option. It's a road less traveled, but it is this road of, you might call it faith or forgiveness. It is trusting God to deal with our hurts as we forgive people who have hurt us. Forgiveness. This is the big idea of this text. And so I want to kind of come at this from a couple of different angles this morning, and I want to start by trying to explain what forgiveness is. Just forgiveness explained. And, And here's one of the things I'm trying to combat this morning. I don't want you to have a shallow view of forgiveness. I want you to have a deep, biblical, robust view of what it means to forgive another human being. So so with that said, let me start by just giving you an image of forgiveness. I think when you look at the Bible, the best imagery for what forgiveness is, is this idea of canceling the debt of another human being. So when someone sins against you, they have accrued a, a debt to you. And forgiveness is is looking at the debt that someone by their actions, words, whatever, have accrued against you, the wounds and the wrongs that they've done to you. It's, it's looking at that debt and saying, I will not make you pay for that debt. I am canceling your debt. This is what forgiveness is. It's a canceling of debt. Now, and I always just like to to throw this out under kind of this idea of forgiveness. This is why forgiveness is always a form of suffering. It always costs. Because when you're saying, you've got a debt against me, you've you've wronged me and sinned against me, but I'm not gonna make you pay for it. Do you know who is paying for it? You are. You're saying, I will accrue it to my account. Rather than making you pay for what you've done, I will pay for what you've done. And we'll settle the accounts at that. See, this is what forgiveness is. It's a canceling of debts. Okay, but now I want to give you, I want to let an old Puritan, his name is is Thomas Watson, give you a a robust definition (laughs) of forgiveness to help you see if you've actually forgiven a person. So if you want to know, have I forgiven this person? Here's you a biblically robust definition that would help kind of give some substance to that. Here's how he, he talks about it. He says, when do we forgive others? How do you know that you've forgiven another human being? Here's how you know. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief or harm, but actually we wish well to them, that we, that we grieve at their calamities. That we pray for them. That we seek reconciliation with them. And show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's a biblically robust view of what forgiveness is. What, like, when, when you see in the Bible this word forgiveness, that's a great view of what the Bible is actually talking about. So let me just break this down into the seven parts of that that definition and give you a reference to kind of go with each one of those seven parts. So so the first thing he's saying is that forgiveness means, like when someone has wronged us, wounded us, forgiveness means that we resist thoughts of revenge. That we're taking our our, our thoughts captive. We're not allowing our imagination to run wild. We're not taking them in our heart and clubbing them day after day internally. That we're resisting these thoughts of revenge. This is Romans uh, 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And let me just clarify this. That forgiveness does not mean you forget the wrong that's done to you. Hopefully over time, God might grace you with that. But but forgiveness does not mean forgetting what was done to you. Forgiveness means I will not dwell on those memories when they pop up. I will not dwell on them. I love what Ken Sandy, uh, some of you might might have heard of him, he's written an extensive curriculum kind of on conflict resolution and that whole thing um, called Peacemakers. But, But he essentially lists four promises that we're making to another human being when we forgive them. And here's the first of the four promises. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on it. I will not allow my mind to just race and run down this road of recalling every little grit and grime of what happened and how you wronged me. I I won't continually, day after day, do that. I will not dwell on this. It's resisting thoughts of revenge. The second part, he says, is don't seek to do them evil or mischief. Okay, so one is in your thoughts. The second one is in your behavior. So when we get punched, forgiveness means that we don't physically punch them back. That's what it means. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says it this way. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, that's a pretty stout command in the Bible right there. It's saying you have to resist these sinful behaviors to go out and punch back. That you have to resist doing mischief and harm to other people. Okay, so that's the second. And Here's the third one. Third part of that definition is that we have to wish well to them. Forgiveness means when, when we've actually tasted forgiveness, when we've granted it to another human being, it means that we have actually gotten our heart to a point, and God has, where we actually wish them well. Now, welcome to the difficulty of forgiveness, right? See, forgiveness is not an external list of actions that you do. It's not, well, I I didn't kill them, so we're all square now. That's not it. Forgiveness is actually wishing them well. Are you seeing that? That it's actually a proactive, not just canceling their debt, but actually putting money and depositing money in their account. That's forgiveness. That it's wishing them well. And wishing them well, I think, walks us into one of the the toughest passages in the entire Bible. This is Luke uh, chapter six, verse 27 and 28 says this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. How about that one? See, you can't love a person without wishing them well. You can't. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. That's what you call wishing a person well. That that when you're forgiving, forgiveness is a subset of loving another human being. And and as we love another human being, it means that we are actually seeking their best welfare, namely in their relationship with God, that it would go well. That they they would be wide open in their relationship to God. So it means that we are wishing well in those ways. So number four, that's number three, number four. Fourth part of his definition is that we would be a people who grieve at the calamities of those who harm us. Wow. That that might actually take a person remade, reborn by God to do that, right? I mean, I I don't know if you've ever been in the moment where someone has harmed you. And is there not a part of you that when life falls apart for them, you think to yourself, I love watching that. There's a part of me that is rejoicing and watching their life fall apart right now. This is the dark side of envy, isn't it? And listen, here's what forgiveness is saying. that There's no place for that in forgiveness. That that within the context of forgiveness, forgiveness means that we are not, like we're wishing them well, that that our interest and our joy in some way is tied up in them. That that when they grieve, that we would grieve. When they rejoice, that we can rejoice. See, if, if you've not gotten to that point, forgiveness has not been completely had for you yet. So that's the the fourth part, grieving at their calamities. And if you want a reference for that, Proverbs 24, 17 would be it. Number five, the fifth part, is that we pray for them. This is Luke 6 and Matthew 5. Uh, This is where Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, it's not just just a heart that says, okay, bygones can be bygones. We'll just call it and leave it at that. It's a heart that says, no, actually I'm praying that God would win in their life. I'm actually praying that God would do and accomplish and move in them. So so it's praying for our enemies or praying for those who have harmed us. The sixth part of it is that we actually seek reconciliation with them. That we're actually seeking reconciliation. And this is Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So I want to try to be clear on what forgiveness does in terms of reconciliation. I think the best way I could describe it is that forgiveness positions your heart or my heart in a place where reconciliation is possible with the person who has harmed us. See, you have not forgiven if the posture of your heart is, we could never ever under any circumstances be reconciled. Forgiveness always positions our heart where reconciliation is possible. Okay, now to take that one step further, reconciliation is always a two-part game, right? That you you can't be reconciled from a one-party perspective. It takes both parties doing that. It takes the, the offended party forgiving and the offending party repenting. I, like reconciliation, the full work of forgiveness takes both of those two things being had. But here is what forgiveness does for the one that is offended. Is it positions your heart to be ready for their repentance and the potential of reconciliation. And if your heart isn't to the line, like isn't to the line of when they repent, I'm willing to reopen, up, like reopen to a relationship with them. If it's not to that line, then forgiveness has not been had yet. Forgiveness positions our heart in such a way where we have the potential and can see the possibility of, of reopening our life to that person. I love what Sam Storms says, author, pastor. He says it this way True forgiveness pursues relationship and restoration. True forgiveness is not satisfied with simply canceling the debt, it longs to love again. That's forgiveness. A longing in you to love again. And I just wanna point out this word seek for a second because I, I think this becomes one of the, the questions that gets asked in the middle of, well, they sinned against me and you know, how does forgiveness and reconciliation, how does all that take place? Who goes first in that? Do, do they need to go first or do I need to go first? And here's the answer, both. If you're the person in the room that has sinned against another person, you need to go like today and express forgiveness and repentance in that. And if you are the one that has been sinned against, like today you need to be forgiving that, regardless of what they've done or haven't done in response to you. You need to be initiating, running after, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. So it's a both thing. It's not a one thing. It's not a, well, they harmed me, so I'll wall myself off, and they can come crawl up my porch, write their letter of apology, and then we can talk. That's not, how it's, that's not how it works. Forgiveness has had way before all of that. So number six is it seeks reconciliation. And number seven is that in, in forgiveness, if you want to test your forgiveness, you can test it like this, that there is a willingness to come to their relief. See, when you have actually forgiven a person, here it is again, it is more than I'm neutral to that person. It is more than the debt is canceled. It actually takes it one step further and says, I will actually work for their relief. Like if they're suffering and I come beside them and I can help, I'm not just going to allow them to suffer. That I'm actually going to do them good to help relieve their suffering. Now, All of that are, when I think about that and some of the incredibly terrible things that I know human beings have done against other human beings, that is hard work, isn't it? I mean, this sort of a view of forgiveness, listen, it actually requires God to make you a new person to do. It actually requires God to just pour out his grace in your heart to extend it to another person. It requires that. But, but this is forgiveness. It's canceling the debt. It is saying to another human being, what you have done against me, you no longer have to pay for. I will absorb that debt. And more than that, I'm actually going to work to credit things to your account. This is forgiveness. This is what we're running after. And before we just keep kind of rolling into the story here of, of Joseph, I just want to make sure that we see the biblical seriousness of this idea of Forgiveness. At the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, this is what Jesus says about our forgiveness and how it plays out relationally. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, I think it'll be on the screen for you. He says it this way. "'For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses.'" Okay, now I want to be really careful there because I think you could misunderstand what Jesus is communicating really quickly if you're not careful. So let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that you earn your standing before God through forgiveness. It is not justification of being made right with God through forgiving. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. What Jesus is teaching here is when we have been forgiven, we become forgiving people. And if we're not forgiving people, it's telling us something about whether or not we have been forgiven. Do you see that? That if we are not forgiving people, the Bible is saying it's just giving you ample evidence for you to know that you have never tasted and experienced the forgiving grace of God. Because people who taste and experience the forgiving grace of God become forgiving people. This is the seriousness with which the Bible looks at this. That if you're looking around at your life right now and saying, man, I'm holding on to these grudges and I will not let go, I don't care what you say or do, that is telling you something about how you view God and what you've experienced of the gospel. And it should tell you a sobering something. It's offering you a warning to do a deep heart check on where you are with God. Okay. So this is forgiveness in the Bible. Now let's just kind of run this through the story of Joseph. And and here's the thing I love about narratives in the Bible is they put big ideas in story form in picture form where you can see it. So the story of Joseph puts forgiveness in story form for us to look at. So remember, he has been harmed against in unbelievable ways, sinned against in severe ways ways. Like ways that that I have a feeling if it were you or I in that circumstance, we would be plotting the demise of those people who did this for years until we got retaliation, right? And so we would be the, it's coming back on you tenfold camp here. But I just want you to see how Joseph responds to them again here. So verse 17, read this with me again. The end of verse 17 says this, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said behold we are your servants but Joseph said to them verse 19 huge statement do not fear for for am i in the place of god question mark am i do you think i'm in the place of god he's saying as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And verse 21, I think, is like the full expression of forgiveness. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let me just show you three things in verse 19, 20, and 21 about forgiveness. And specifically forgiveness in our man Joseph here. And here's the first one in verse 19. Joseph says this do not fear, for am I in the place of God. That they're wanting his forgiveness, and he's saying, Listen, am I in the place of God to withhold that sort of a thing? Am I am I in the place of God? Here's the first thing we see about Joseph is he refused to play God. He refused to do it. He would not put himself in God's place. He refused to do that. Now here's the implication of what he's saying here. That when we hold on to grudges, we are attempting to kick God out of his chair and to sit in it ourselves. This is what he's saying. When we hold on to grudges, we are attempting to play God. We are attempting to be God. When we hold on to grudges, here's what we're saying. That we know the best way for them to get justice. We know the best way for for them to pay for this. We know when it should happen, how it should happen, the details around it. We've got this figured out. And do you know what forgiveness will always cost you? Your ability to play God. One of the reasons that forgiveness is so difficult for us is because it wrestles out of our control how this thing goes, how justice is dealt, what what it looks like for them to pay for it. It wrestles control out of our hand. And listen, this is what it requires. The reason forgiveness is so hard for us is because it wrestles control out of our hand and it requires us to actually trust that God knows best and is wise enough to give people what they actually need and deserve. It requires that. See, for you to forgive another person, here's what you've got to say. I will no longer make you pay for it and I will trust God to be God and for God to do right. That's what what forgiveness requires. And and this is what our man Joseph did. He is saying in this moment, I am going to trust God to settle all accounts. And can I just tell you, God has promised to settle all accounts. For, For every person that's ever wronged you, here's what you can know. God will right the wrong. Either their sin against you will hang on the neck of Jesus for them or it will hang on their own neck for eternity. But but God is clear that that he will get justice. He will right every wrong in the end. But what forgiveness requires from you and I is to simply trust him to do it. So let me take a step back and just ask the question. This morning in your life, people who have harmed you, Are you holding a grudge? Have you dug your heels in? I am not going to forgive them. I'm not, I am not going to do it. If you have, let let me just remind you this. You are attempting this morning to play God. And and just to invite you to read Genesis chapter 3, that worked out terribly for Adam and Eve. And can I just say it's going to work out terribly for you? You were never meant to be God. You're meant to trust God, to do right in these situations. You know, when we're sinned against, I I think the imagery of us standing on the edge of a knife would be good imagery to get in your mind of of what's happening when we are sinned against. That, That we are positioned on the edge of the knife and we're gonna go one of two ways. Either we're going to trust God to do right, or we're going to fall into revenge and retaliation and to trying to gain back the power to be able to make them pay for what they've done. And can I just tell you, if that's you, if you're the person that's trying to gain the power to make them pay for it, here's what's happening right now in your soul. The evil and the sin that they did against you is starting to move into you. You hearing that? That if you're the person right now that's holding that grudge, I will not forgive. I'm working for the power to be able to retaliate tenfold back on their head. If that's you, then the evil they did against you, here's the dangerous part of that. It is now moving into you. I love how one pastor kind of talked about this idea of unforgiveness being an attempt to play God. And he said this at the end of that. He said, you know, here's the great irony in trying to play God. The fastest way to be like Satan is to try to be like God. To try to be in the chair of God. To try to, to try to play God. The fastest way to be like Satan is to try to play God. And the fastest way to be godly is to refuse to be like God. Just allow that to settle over you. The quickest way you can be like Satan is for you to hold a grudge. For you, for you to hold that grudge for you to allow the evil they did to you to actually start moving into you. But here's the beautiful thing about Joseph in this passage is he refused to do that. He refused to sit in God's chair. He he refused to play God. But here's the second thing we see in, in verse 20 is that he took God's view. Verse 20 is gonna walk us back into this big biblical idea of providence. So here it is in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, when we're sinned against, here is one of the number one problems that we have. It's just a perspective problem. It's a perspective problem. We just can't see all that's going on in that moment. And you know, there's really, if you think about in the moment of someone sinning against you, there's two general places from which you can view that that moment of being sinned against or being wounded and wronged by another person. And if you think about it in general terms, you might could say one is, is from the valley. So, so one is in the knit the and grit. You're in the forest and, and you are, you know, in, in the valley. All you can see is just what's ahead of you. It's really hard to get perspective on it in the valley. All you can see is what your next step needs to be. So, so it's a one-dimensional sort of a playing field in the valley. But there's another way, if, if you could just picture yourself on a hike and trying to get bearings as to where you are, That the valley is not where you get your bearings, is it? That you need to get to high ground. You need to get to the peak to see a panoramic picture of the world and what's going on in it. So you'll know what to do and how to navigate it. And these are, generally speaking, the two places that you can see all of the wounds and wrongs done against you. You've got one perspective is the valley. Okay, it's in verse 19. This is Joseph saying, As for you, you meant evil against me. And, and let me just clear this up too on this idea of forgiveness, that when we forgive a person, we are not excusing their sin. I just want to be really clear on that. Forgiving is not saying to a person who has wronged you in a really deep way, hey, you know what, it's okay, it wasn't that bad, or it wasn't that big of a deal. No, sin is always a big deal. It's always a big deal. And especially when it is a deep and serious wound, it is a big deal. Joseph is not minimizing the sin. He's looking at his brothers and he is saying, what you did was evil. What you did was wrong. What you did deeply hurt. What you did, you meant for great evil. So in no way, shape, or form is he scraping that under the rug. And that's the view from the valley. It's looking at what is happening and it's, and it's knowing that that person intended that for that wrong and that sin. But he also had the view from the peak. And look at the view from the peak in verse 20. So valley, as for you, you meant evil against me. But here's the peak. From God's perspective. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, when when you think about the valley, seeing everything from the valley. They did this and this was their intention and that's all we can see. The problem from the valley is that everything is one-dimensional. So in other words, when your life is going good in the valley, then life is good. I mean, it couldn't get any better. But when life is going terrible, the wheels are falling off in your life, then life is just absolutely horrible and everything is, is, is bad. See, it's one-dimensional. Life's going well, then life's good. Life's going bad, then life's bad. But, but from the, the peak, from God's perspective, here's what providence allows us to say providence looking at things from the peak actually creates depth in our life where we can say on this level life is terrible my brothers just meant this for evil they tried to kill me sold me into slavery but on this level we can say life could not be better god is good right now in this moment and what god is doing See, when we view life and circumstances from the peak, when we take God's view of the moment and the situation, it allows us to have depth. It allows us to say, this is terrible. It was sin, but God is still good and God is doing good. So let me just apply this to our life real quick. Here's what this practically means for you and I. The providence of God, that God will twist, promises to twist every trouble in our life for good. That promise means two things. One, that ultimately, listen to this, you, if you're a son or daughter of God, if you're you're in Christ, one of God's, ultimately, you cannot wreck your life. How do you know that? That you cannot ultimately wreck your life if you're a son or daughter of God. Listen, if I could wreck my life, I would have already done it. And if you could have wrecked your life, you would have already have done it. And listen, I want to talk to those in the room who right now you find yourself in the position of Joseph's brothers. They have done terrible sin. They look back over their life and are probably in this moment shocked at how brazen and bold their sin was. And I just want you to see— That if they could have messed up their life, they would have already have messed it up. If ultimately they could have destroyed their life, they would have already destroyed it. But they can't destroy it. If they're a son or daughter of God, and if you're a son or daughter of God, you can't destroy it. You remember our man David in the Bible? You remember the moment where he's out on the king's palace and he looks and sees a woman named Bathsheba and he says, I don't care about my family. I don't care about anything other than getting that girl in bed. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He murders uh, Bathsheba's husband. That's David. That is a man who is bent on trying to wreck his life. But can we all see what happened? That God, providence, this is what providence means. That God is promising to turn even the worst of things into the best of things. The worst of our sin into the best of what God can do. That coming down out of David and Bathsheba, adultery and murder. Coming down out of all of that, you start tracing the descendants and you know who you get to? This man named Jesus. Came from that. See, here's all I'm trying to say. To those of you who right now, you look back over your life and and you are just like riddled with guilt and I mean, it's just terrible when you think about it. I just want you to know when you're looking back, ultimately you can't wreck your life. And if we could, we all would have already have done it. This is what it means for God to be providential. This is the, providence that pro- the promise that providence makes to you. Ultimately, you can't wreck it. Your life is in God's hands, not your hands. But here's another promise of providence. Not only that, that ultimately you can't wreck your life, but ultimately, listen to this, for those who have been wronged and sinned against in the room, ultimately, no other human being on the planet, no one else can wreck your life. You know that? Ultimately, no one else can wreck your life. If another human being could have wrecked Joseph's life, Joseph's brothers would have been the people, right? I mean, their intent when they heard that they're gonna be bowing down to him someday, their intent was to kill that dream. Killing that dream meant we're gonna kill Joseph and it turned into them selling Joseph into slavery. But here is the wonderful news of providence. The promise of providence is seen right here in this moment. That their action of trying to kill God's dream for Joseph's life was actually the thing that set God's dream for Joseph's life in motion. Can, can I just say you that that's going to be your life too? And you may not get to see with, with as much clarity as Joseph did into how all of these things were knit together and led to this and that. But this is the promise that God makes for every one of us. That even the worst sin and being wronged and wounded, the the worst things that people can do against us do not have the power to keep us from going where God would have us go. Do you know that? That the worst sins against you, all they are at the end of the day are just a means that God is using to take you where he wants you to be. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, that sovereignty has servants everywhere. And do you know the people who have done the worst harm to you, they're servants of God's sovereignty for your life? They are servants of sovereignty. That the people who have railed against what God would want to do with you and for you, the people who have greatly harmed you, the best they can do is just like Joseph's brother, is to set in motion what God actually wants to do and accomplish in your life that ultimately no one can wreck your life. They don't have the power to do that. Now just think about that in the context of forgiveness. What if we got out of the valley and got to the peak where we're actually seeing from God's perspective? How would that change the way you see people who have harmed you? You know, I think that there is an element when Joseph gets to the end of his life and looks at his brothers, that there is a part of him that could look at his brothers and say, what you did was great evil. But there's a part of me that says, I want to thank you for what you did because of what God accomplished in it. And here's the promise that God would give every one of us. It may not be in this life. It may be in the next. But there will be a moment when life is seen from such a perspective that just like Joseph, we are seeing how every detail of the story has been knit together, even being greatly wronged against to fulfill and to accomplish all that God wanted to do with us and for us. That's coming for you. And, and the more we start to see from God's perspective that, that providence, that God is going to twist every trouble in our life for good, the more it will enable us to look at other people who mean great harm to us and say, I forgive you. I, I forgive you. The debt is canceled toward you. So Joseph, he refused to play God. He saw from God's point of view, from his perspective, And thirdly, Joseph displayed God's forgiving grace. I just want you to read with me verse 21 one more time. If you want a remarkable view of God's grace toward people, man, it is seen in vivid colors in verse 21. These are the people who did the great harm towards Joseph. These are the people who sold him into slavery. These are the people that if you trace back the wounds that Joseph has right now in his life, a lot of them go back to these men right here. And this is what he says to them. So do not fear. You don't have to to live in fear that I'm gonna bare my teeth and kill you one day. You don't have to do that. So, So do not fear. And it's not just a canceling the debt. It's actually crediting things to their account. Look at what he says. Not only will I not kill you, but... I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Apart from the cross, I think this is one of the most vivid illustrations of what forgiveness practically looks like in the Bible. A a man that is canceling the debt to such a degree that he's actually saying, I'm gonna wish you well. I'm gonna work for your blessing. I'm gonna return your evil for great blessing." I mean, it is a beautiful passage here. And I just want to remind you of this. When we're talking about displaying the forgiving grace of God to the world, that there are not going to be better opportunities and moments in your life to do that than when people greatly sin against you and harm you. We talk about this all the time, that our lives are intended to be, are intended to demand, are meant to demand a gospel explanation. In other words, there's to be counterintuitive enough where people would look at our life and say, what is wrong with that person? And the question becomes, well, what sort of moments give us that opportunity? And can I just tell you one of those moments is going to be when people greatly sin against you, just like Joseph. And in that moment, we get to extend the grace of God toward them. That that's counterintuitive. That's not normal. Normal people don't operate that way. Could we all agree with that? Normal people don't do that. It takes God in us to do that. When we're doing that, when we are responding with forgiveness and grace and mercy to people who have harmed us, it is the most visible and tangible picture of, of a God of grace that there will ever be for most people. Okay, and I want to end with this. I want to end by talking about forgiveness in our church family. And really, I I want to just ask this question and try to answer it. What will create in our church, what will create the capacity to forgive like this? What creates that capacity? When I think about our church, this is one thing that I pray for our church, is that God would make us the most forgiving faith family that there is on the planet the most forgiving church family that there is, that God would make us into that. And the question becomes, how does God create that capacity in you and in me and in us to actually become that? How does that happen? Matthew 18, I think, is the answer to that. So if you want to flip there, you can. If you want to listen, I'll have a couple, pa- a couple of the verses on the screen for you. Matthew 18. Um, in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus is teaching about forgiveness, And in the middle of that teaching, Peter comes to Jesus with a question that goes like this. This is in verse 21. Peter comes to Jesus teaching about forgiveness and says, Lord, how many, how often, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. I mean, not that Peter was counting it or anything, right? But essentially Peter's saying, surely there's gotta be a limit on this. There's gotta be a limit of, people sinning against me and then me forgiving surely there's got to be like at some point a line in the sand that says when when you get to this point I will not do this anymore forgiveness runs out right there surely there's that moment and here's Jesus' response to him Jesus said to him I do not say seven times but 70 times seven I don't think that's the response that Peter wanted to hear in that moment Seventy times seven is a way of saying, it's not a way of saying multiply the numbers and that's how many times. It's a way of saying it's, it's unlimited. That Peter, there are no boundaries around forgiveness. That Peter, there is no line in the sand that when they sin against you this severely or this many times, then you can look at them and say, we're done, the ship has sailed, see you later. There is no limit to it. This is what Jesus is saying, that the sort of forgiveness that grace enables is boundless. It is uncontainable. It is reckless. It is that sort of forgiveness. And then he, and then he shows a parable, tells a parable that I think is like the key into creating the capacity to actually forgive like that. Unlimited, reckless, to actually do that. And, and here's how the parable goes in, in Matthew 18. He tells the story of a king who um, is looking around and realizes he's got a person that owes him some money. And and the Bible says that it was 10,000 talents that this man owed the king. Now 10,000 talents is like a, I I think the equivalent, if I were just to mention in in this room, the equivalent as to what it would generate in a group of people would be like saying $10 billion. The the king looked at a person that owed him $10 billion. A, A talent was 20 years wages, so it's 20 years wages times 10,000 is the idea. So it's just an, an insurmountable amount of money. It, it's, I don't even know what $10 billion looks like. You could throw it out on the floor and I'd have no idea how much money that is, right? But I know this about $10 billion. I don't have the money to pay it. I know that you could beat me. You could do whatever you want. You could sell all my assets. I'm not gonna get to $10 billion. I know, that, I'm, I know I'm in deep trouble whenever I hear $10, or $10 billion debt. I, I know that. So so here's what happens. The guy knows he's in trouble. So he goes to this king that he owes $10 billion to and, listen, pleads for his life. And the king looks at him and cancels a $10 billion debt. Now, in this parable, that is meant to be the illustration of God's forgiveness to you and I. Listen, can I tell you, we're all in the same boat Before God, everyone in the room has a $10 billion debt. That I don't care how many good works you want to throw into it, you're never going to be able to repay it. I don't care how many good things you do, how many times you come to church, how many times you read your Bible, you'll never in your life be able to repay it. This is the picture, that your sin has accrued a debt that is impossible to pay. And the great news of the gospel is that the king is merciful. That he has sent his son, Jesus, and he's lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. On the cross, he died for your sin. And here's the great news of the gospel. is on the cross, God packaged up our debt that's unpayable. $10 billion packaged up our debt and laid it on Jesus on the cross. And listen, crushed him with it to death with it so that you and I would no longer have the debt. This is the great news of the gospel that Jesus took our debt so we would not have to pay it, that we all have a 10 billion dollar debt and it's wiped clean because of Jesus for us. That, that's the great news of the gospel. Now here's how the parable ends. <clears throat> the parable ends— with uh, the man who has been forgiven the $10 billion debt, he looks around and realizes, wow, there's some people who actually owe me some money. And, and the illustration that it gives is the guy that owes him 100 denarii. That would be the equivalent of one day's wage. So let's just call it $200. He, he looks around and sees that this man owes him $200. The man can't pay it. The man comes to him, pleads for his life. Don't make me go to prison. I'll sell whatever. I'll try to do whatever. Let's work it out. And the guy looks at him and says, no, prison is yours. A $10 billion debt was just canceled and he holds a $200 debt against a guy. Now this is how Jesus ends the parable. He says this. Then his master, talking about the king, summoned this ungrateful man that was just forgiven, summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And verse 33 is the key here. And you should not have had, and and should, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Let me read that one more time should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, let let me try to just put the point of the parable out there and just a sentence for you. The point of the parable is this that Christians should be the most forgiving people in the world. They should be the most forgiving people in the world because, here's what creates the capacity, because we are the most forgiven people in the world. Are we saying that? That we should be the most forgiving people in the world because we have tasted and experienced the most incredible forgiveness that the world has ever known. This is what the parable is teaching us, that we should be forgiving like that. The parable isn't just showing us what we are to do, forgive. It's not just showing us that. It's showing us what creates the capacity to forgive. Namely, we have been forgiven. A $10 billion debt erased. And see, when we start seeing life through that lens, $10 billion erased. It makes it really simple to to forego a $200 debt, doesn't it? It makes it much easier to look at the $200 debt and say, that that seems small to me right now. Maybe you could say it this way. The problem of the parable is this man has forgotten forgiveness. That the problem of the parable is he has forgotten the $10 billion debt that was removed and canceled from him And because he had forgotten that, he's starting to look around and he's holding all of these small debts, $200 debts against other people. And can I just tell you this? In light of the $10 billion debt that God has canceled for you if you're in Christ, the worst sins against you are just $200 debts, the worst of them. See, the problem in this parable is a problem of forgetfulness. He has simply forgotten what he has been forgiven from. I love how Paul Tripp says it. He says, A lifestyle of unforgiveness is rooted in the sin of forgetfulness. We forget that there is not a day in our lives that we do not need to be forgiven. We forget that, that we will never graduate from our need for grace. We forget that we have been loved with a love we could never earn, achieve, or deserve. We forget that God never mocks our weakness, never finds joy in throwing our failures in our face, never threatens to turn his back on us, and never makes us buy our way back into his favor. When you forget, when you remember, like we're talking about remembering that $10 $10 billion debt removed, when you remember, when you carry with you a deep appreciation for the grace that you have been given, you will have a heart that is ready to forgive. Amen? Let me close with this. Um, one of the guys that goes to our church, his name is Derek Stewart. He, uh, over the last several years, has been working in Muslim contexts around the world. And over the last year, he's been in Southern California working with an agency called Voice of the Refugees, where he has been working with some some refugees from Iraq that have found themselves in Southern California. And several months ago, he was telling me about the story of two people that that he came across um, while working with the the Voice of the Refugees. And the first guy's name was Jamal. And Jamal was a a man that grew up in Iraq. He's walking down the road one day and— A group of young guys are playing with a rocket launcher. Now, first of all, just thank God you don't live in a context where you're walking down the road and people are randomly playing with rocket launchers, right? He's walking down the road, these young group of guys playing with a rocket launcher. It fires, lands by him and blows off his arm. And because of that, he loses his job, can't provide for his family. He ends up getting shipped to a refugee camp in Turkey, then ends up getting to Southern California as a refugee culture he doesn't know, group of people he doesn't know, all of that. And then you've got a, a lady named Nihad. She also grew up in Iraq and she lost a son in the fighting in Iraq. She also got moved to a refugee camp, finds herself in, uh, in uh, Southern California. Same place, they're, they're together. They're talking to him and there's this profound moment when they look at both of these two, two people, Jamal and Nihad, and say, could you ever forgive those people who have harmed you and wronged you? Could you ever do it? And Jamal is a Muslim. And he looked it back, and as soon as the question was asked, almost just kind of a, a face of anger. You could just see that emotion fill him. And, and he looked and he said, there is no way. They have taken everything from me. I could never forgive them. And then they look at Nihad and ask her the same question. An emotion fills her. She, she begins to cry, just broken down. And Nehad is a Christian. And she said, it feels so hard, but yes, I can and I am forgiving them because Jesus has forgiven me. Now, do you see the key, what creates the capacity, the difference in those two? One had experienced and tasted deep forgiveness from God. The other one hadn't. And if we want to be a people who are forgiving like that, then it's going to require us to remember the gospel, remember our debt that's been canceled by Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. As our guys come up, and we're going to finish by responding in song today and I want to give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful today. And and I I want to ask you two questions. And the first one goes like this. Have you really tasted and experienced God's forgiveness? The $10 billion debt being wiped away. I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you've signed a card raised your hand. I'm asking, has there been a moment in your life where you have been flooded by the forgiveness of God? Has there been a moment where God has actually saved you and you've tasted grace in that way? And, And can I just tell you, if not, that there is no hope for forgiveness apart from that. There is no hope for it. And here's the great news of the gospel, is that if this morning you haven't, you can hold your hands up to God and say, God, I need Jesus to pay my debt. And the Bible says God would gladly apply the work of Jesus to you. Your debt could be removed today. You could experience that today. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, to make sure you check that box on your visitor card or on that card this morning. It talks about wanting a relationship to Jesus, and we'll follow up with you this week. And secondly, in the room, there's another group of us that we're holding grudges. We're holding grudges right now. And may this be a morning where we remember all that we have been forgiven from. And may that produce in us a gracious willingness to extend forgiveness to other people. So God, I pray that it would. I pray that would prove to be true for our church and our church family that you would make us into the most forgiving people in the world. God, we pray that you'd do it. It's in your good name we ask that. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.